Episode 201 of the Bevan James Isle Show, an interview with Emma Carney. Radio team, welcome along to episode one, 201 of the Bevan James I'll Show, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of fitness, so you can get all the benefits that come alongside it. Today I've got a really cool interview, I actually, it's an interview from my other podcast, I Am Talk, I Am Talk is a triathlon podcast and we have another show called Legends of Triathlon and it's where we get... Basically, the legends of the sport. We only do about three or four shows a year, and it's where we get real legends of the sport, just talking about their career and their legacy and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it's if you, it's even if you're not a triathlon lover, I do recommend you go and listen to Legends of Triathlon. And the reason I say that is because. It's just listening to high-level people, and that's what you're going to be listening to today, because we did this interview just before Christmas, and I have to admit, it is just in the first week of January, so I kind of am kind of still on holiday, so I hadn't put much prep into this show, but at the same time, I, I wanted to share this interview because it, it teaches you the understanding of a high-level focused person who's a winner. Emma Carney, just to give you a short history, we go into it in the, in the interview obviously, is through the 90s, there was basically a five year period where she was just unbeatable in triathlon and this is before the Olympics so um, it was an interesting time and, and we don't really go into this but she kind of controversially didn't get picked for the Australian Olympic team and it was it's quite a hard bit in her career and we didn't actually ask that question because she doesn't like to talk about it but she does kind of talk about it a little bit in the interview but um you just you just it's just an insight it blows my mind away the insight that you gain from this interview when you're hearing somebody who you know winning is the only option and what it takes and and who you are as a person to be that and because let's be honest most of us don't really experience that person in our life you know that person who is you know when you think of your friends and family most of us you know we're trying to grow and we're definitely trying to kind of improve ourselves and stuff like that but that person who's just single-mindedly willing to do whatever it takes to, to be the best and Emma Carney is a great example of it. So, and, like, as we're interviewing her, I'm just I'm just loving the interview. And I did think to myself, I should check this on my show because it's just such a great interview. Now, I, as you'll see in the interview, it's my other the other host of the Joy of the I Am Talk, John Newsom, is also helping interview. So thank you to John for your help in this interview. But I'm going to pretty much get straight into it because it's a longish interview. So um, before I do, I want to say a big thank you to the patrons of the show. These are people who support the show by donating some of their hard-earned money each time I release a show and if you want to become a patron go to bevanjamesos.com click on podcast support me go to the patreon page and you donate as little or as much as you want so you put as much you, how much you want to donate to each show when you do that you get a cool Bevan James Oh show nickname and these are a few of the people who already are patrons of the show we've got Gemma and Mitch uh, Gemma and Glenn Mitchell uh, Team Divine we've got Libby Allen Hilda we've got Rebecca Bullseye Spears we've got Bernadette Soul Calibur Parry we've got Mac, Mac I should say Matt Forrest Warhol at Curse and then we've got Holly 
the Go-Getter Woodhouse. These are all amazing patrons of the show. So if you want to become a patron, go to bevanjamesisles.com and check it out. Uh, other than that, I'm not going to talk too much today because I want to get into this interview with Emma Carney. Here it is right now. Okay, guys. Uh, so we're back with Legends of Triathlon. Um, it's been a little bit of a, a little bit of time between drinks, but we've got an absolute legend uh, coming on today, Emma Carney. She was a two-time world champion, um, but when you look at her record through that sort of period, she was the World Cup Series winner three years. She won nineteen uh, ITU World Cup races. So back then. What you see these days with the World Championship Series, they were called World Cups, so just really dominant through her um, through her career. She recently got a book out, which we're going to be discussing today, called Hardwire, Hardwired Life, Death and Triathlon, an autobiography. Uh, and a lot of you guys who watch the triathlon live coverage that I'm always raving about, uh, she is the voice that you've been hearing for, I think, the last season, maybe two seasons. So welcome along to the show, Emma. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I've followed your career very closely because you were kind of on the scene, uh, came onto the scene more or less the same time as I did. Granted, we're at uh, other ends of the spectrum, um, but I'm keen to know what you were doing before triathlon. Um, I know it was a sort of a running career, but but where was life sort of heading for you before triathlon came along? Um, I suppose my well, my start into triathlon was was very um, was very much with a big impact. First race I did internationally was the World Championships that I won. Um, so a lot of people sort of thought I came from nowhere and um, I suppose in the triathlon world I'd been in the sport sort of 18 months um, but prior to that I had um, from about the age of six I pretty much wanted to run for Australia wanted to be a, a top-class runner and um, from the age of six yeah and I had a father who was involved in the sports industry. So at the time he was at Adidas and then he moved to Nike and as I was racing he moved to Fila. Um, and my dad from the age of six to about the age of 18 wouldn't let me train properly. He, wouldn't, he, he held me back because he could see that I was the type of person that would, you know, if they wanted, you do want to do something, you do it really 100%. Yep. So I was always frustrated, you know, getting seconds and thirds at um, state and national championships and things like that. And, um, yeah, I've, I found the sport of triathlon when I was – I'd started running for Australia. So, I, you know, was, my times were 9.07 for a 3K, um, 4.20-something for a 1,500, 4.23. So they were good, but they're not outstanding. Um, but I got to the point where I was running for Australia, did a couple of World Cross Country champs, um, some road relays, and I had a few injuries and, and, you know, Dad saw this sport of triathlon and he said, have a, have, a, have a look at this, and I thought, oh, how hard can that be? So, you know, I've swum at school and did some bike riding, um, you know, <laughs> as a kid. Um, but as it turned out, the swim was horrendous, 750 metres. It's a sprint race. Lost about seven minutes. Um, then on the the bike, to me the whole thing seemed like a mess because I'd been running races all my life and you could see exactly where everyone was. All of a sudden I was just in <laughs> through packs of people and had no idea what was going on. So when I got to the run, I just every time I ran past a girl, I asked her if she was winning. <laughs> and <laughs> so, 
got to, you know, no, oh, okay, no. And I finally got to a girl and she said, yes. I said, oh, good. So I went past when I won. <laughs> um, and, yeah, Dad's very black and white and um, a couple of days later, you know, at dinner he sort of, um, I, you know, you've got to go through the details in the book, Dad's um, logic. I got him to write it down. But he worked out on paper that I was the best triathlete in the world. I just needed to learn to swim. Yeah. So, um you know, then he worked out that the world champs are in Wellington, New Zealand, in 18 months. And he said, I think if you do well in Australia, you'll be one of the best in the world because the women in Australia were dominating at that point. Um, and he said, so I'd just go over there and win a world title. So, you know, we set about that plan and we found some um, found some coaches. It was pretty hard in Australia finding a swim coach. You know, can you teach us to swim? We've got to win a world title in 18 months. Most of them laughed at us. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we, we put it all together. We had some really good coaches and, um, yeah, uh, Before we go, I want to talk about Wellington in a moment, but just in terms of how you said your dad held you back, like I've, I've got challenges myself at the moment. My son has, like, become a triathlon nutter and I'm really conscious to try to hold him back, but it's like he just wants to go training all the time and I help with the junior program as well and we've got parents who they're pushing their kids, some are trying to hold them back. So what did he actually do to, to hold you back? He just wouldn't let me run. <laughs> um, it was did my head in. So um, I was very fortunate. I went to a good school in Melbourne, very good school, um, Wesley College. And I started there in grade three. So, you know, quite young. And um, the private school system in Melbourne has a strong sport program. So when I went to school, when I started at Wesley in grade three, I suddenly had a a PE uniform, and suddenly had sports days. You know, I had swimming sports, athletics, cross country. I could play any sport I wanted, and I'd been nagging Dad for years to let me do little athletics. And he he said, "Oh, look, I've heard that's one of the worst sports in the world for burning out mm. um, young kids." And um, yeah, I he just wouldn't let me train. So I, when I went to school, I was able to do all these sports. And so I started doing um, as many sports as I could. And it was only running that I could really do. I got myself banned from team sports because <laughs> <laughs> because I only played to win. And, um, you know, allegedly, it was never proven, allegedly I was throwing the ball at people and not to them because I was, you know, I was in the first team. <laughs> in grade four and softball, and if people weren't playing for win, to win, they just sconded softball in the back of their head. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, but, but so, with, with your running, do you think you could have reached a much higher level if your dad had let you run? Um, God, who knows? Yeah. I, I would definitely have been, um, you know, national champion a few times as a junior, absolutely no doubt. I, I raced and you know, came seconds and thirds and I was doing like, oh, God, if I was lucky, 20K a week. Wow. And I remember I, I did the um, national cross country, I think it was the under-17s, and I just wanted a medal that day and I ran as hard as I could. My legs ached for a day, you know, had to get back from Tasmania and I managed to scrape a silver and I was hardly talking to Dad all the way home because I got a silver. So, I, I mean, it, it was... I was also the type of person who would have really, you know, if if, a, if I had a coach that was mean enough to, say, run a marathon a day, I would have done it, that at the age of 10. You know, I just, whatever was required, I'd just do it. Where does that come from? I don't know. 
you can look into your family history. I talk a little bit about my grandparents and um, my dad in my book. Um, there's definitely an imbalance there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just, I don't know, the, the passion. Um, I can't see the point in doing any, anything sort of half half-assed. Um, those that have read my book can't believe the detail, um, you know, because I wanted to write a book, but I wanted to write a really good book. Um, it's, it's been nominated for, for a couple of awards, um, Sport Writers Awards and Autobiography Awards, um, just because of, you know, I kept diaries throughout my throughout my life and it's it's got stuff in there that, you know, little conversations and things that you've had and people are like, how do you even remember that? But... Yeah, so I suppose I've always had that passion in sport and I've always um, enjoyed sport and you've got no choice. If you want to be a world-class sports person, you've got to win. Mm. So that's that's your job. I'm fascinated because I, I thought that we were going to talk to you and your dad was going to be a bit more of a sport dad and sort of pushing you and you, whether or not you're trying to sort Obviously, of... Kind of like Andre Agassi's dad. Yeah, yeah. so it's fascinating that he was, uh, it was, he was really holding you back. Um, yeah. Just with regards... so. When you came over to New Zealand, it was 1994. I know you came over. We had our national champs, which was a test run on the, the course they were going to use for the Wellington World Champs. And pretty sure you finished third place there behind Sarah Harrow and somebody else, I think. You're either second or third. Um, and then you came back and, and won the World Champs. Um, so other than learning to swim, um, what was that sort of, I guess it was probably about six months. Was it like a, a whirlwind, just trying to figure out triathlon? No, we figured it out at that kitchen table and that conversation the first time. And when Dad said to me, you can win a world title, that was okay. I didn't doubt it from then on. Mm. Um, so I've got some very different triathlon theories or coaching theories to, to a lot of people and, um, you know, they worked. Then my heart came along uh, my heart condition came along and destroyed my ability to race. So then it was like, oh, yeah, you know, Carney doesn't know what she's talking about. Mm. But we had some very specific theories. So, um, for example, swimming obviously is about swimming fast for 200 to 300 metres and then hanging on. Um, the bike, I believe, and I still believe this in triathlon today and I don't see it happening enough, the bike is about fitness and um, riding the bike well and riding courses smart. So you need to be fit on the bike. A, a bike session in a car park, practicing turns and um, fiddling around, that's okay for, you know, 10-year-olds. But if you want to be an elite triathlete, you go out and you suffer, suffer in the hills, suffer in the wind, suffer on those dead roads that um, the Australian bush is really, you know, known for. Um, and running is quality. So I never practiced running off the bike because I, I just couldn't see the point in practicing running badly. So we set about being the fastest we possibly could over all three disciplines. And um, the swim was about minimizing the damage for me. And the bike and the run was about just ripping everyone's legs off. <laughs> Which you did very well. <laughs> what I find really interesting is you sit down at this table, your dad says, I think you'd be a world champ. You, you kind of calculate it, you kind of you help with your plan. But you, 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 you obviously have a deep inner confidence because, you, you know, you don't, it seems like in that moment, I was like, okay, let's do it. Like, it wasn't like, oh, this might not happen. It was just like... Well, it had got to the point in my life, well, I was only, what, 20, um, 
all my life I'd wanted to be a world-class athlete and suddenly I saw this sport that I could be the best in the world. So, yeah, I was going to be the best in the world. Mm. So, so what happened after 94? Bevan was asking me before, you know, was Emma like a household name in Australia? And I was like... As your career progressed, I think you probably were because triathlon was quite high profile. But when you won that first title in 1994, how did life change or did it change very much, say, for the for the next six months? Um, yeah, it did. I suppose it did change. And, um, yeah, I became a bit of a household name. <laughs> um, one of the funny things, probably should talk about Wellington. One of the funny mm. things was um, my little sister Claire she won the Junior Worlds two hours before me. Oh, wow. And um, so, you know, that's something that's never been done before. Siblings win the Junior and the Senior World titles. And um, when Dad, when, when Claire won, Dad wanted to go into the finish area to, you know, just congratulate her. And there's this big security guard there. And Dad said, look, you wouldn't believe it. I don't have any passes. My sister's, my daughter's won out of, out of the blue. Can you let me in and congratulate her? And so the security guards kind of like, mm, I don't, you know, didn't really believe Dad, but let him in. And so Dad congratulated Claire, but of course, you know, two hours later, his Dad's back. <laughs> he goes, "Oh, you'll never believe it. My other daughter's about to be in." The security guard goes, "Piss off, mate." <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, Dad got in. Um, Jim Bolger was there. Yeah, who was New Zealand's prime minister. minister. Yep. Yeah, and he um, he was standing with someone that knew Dad. So the security guard couldn't believe it. He was like, oh, this guy's an idiot. <laughs> but, um, yeah, when we won, um, came back to Australia and <laughs> the ABC was at the airport and it was it was immediately picked up by the Australian media, immediately, because it had been sisters doing something out of the blue. Um, no one believed we'd do it. Triathlon Australia were apparently taking bets against us. <laughs> um but Triathlon Australia have always, have never really embraced me fully. It was always New South Wales, Queensland athletes, and they never. Where, where are you based? Where, where were you based? Victoria. Okay. Victoria, down near Melbourne. And I'm, you know, I did my own training. I did different training. Um, didn't sort of suit their, um, I don't know. Well, didn't, don't, don't know what I didn't suit because I won for them. Yeah. But um, there, were, there were other things like, you know, Dad was boss of Nike and, I wanted to wear Nike, but Dad obviously couldn't negotiate with himself, so he had to get a, a manager. Yeah. And we negotiated this fee for me if I won Wellington. And everyone in the office at Nike must have thought it was a bit of a piss take. And so they, you know, yeah, yeah, we'll sign him a carney on, whatever, whatever the boss wants. Yeah. And uh, a couple of days before the race, before we were about to go out to um, New Zealand, the head of marketing, um, Ben Buckley, came in to see Dad at Nike and said, uh, David, do you think Emma will win? And Dad didn't even look up. He says, yeah, of course. And uh, he said, oh, okay. <clears throat> Dad said, why? And he said, uh, I haven't budgeted for her bonus. And Dad <laughs> said, well, I suggest you go and find that. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, yeah. Do you, know, do, do, you know, do you know what I think is really interesting in your language is you always talk about we win. So you always saw yourself as a team? Yeah, it was always Dad, me, and Claire, and then um, Claire. Claire had a weaker body than me. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure if she was even either. I th I always thought Claire had more talent than me. We'd do training sessions, and you'd just think, oh, here we go. 
And uh, but it'll come to a race, and I was prepared prepared to die out there. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So the, the next few years, you know, you were I was showing Bevan your record before, and you're just about unbeatable. There was a couple of occasions. Um, I think it was in Cancun and maybe in Cleveland where you did get beaten, but outside of that, you were pretty much unbeatable. Um, did did you? When you go into races, did you ever contemplate not winning? Like, were you just so positive that you could come back from any situation if you got beat up in the swim, you could come back because your running was so much stronger? Or what was your mindset going into each race? Well, I had race plans, so it wasn't a confidence as in, okay, I'm going to come in here and everyone's crap. You know, I, I was very much um, number one rule in elite sport is never, ever, ever, ever underestimate your opponent. Mm. So I... And then there's the other two rules. You've got to be fitter than everyone and you've got to know more about everything than everyone. So I'd go into races and I had picked apart the course, I'd picked apart my competition, I'd picked apart myself and then I'd worked out in the areas where I'd be really good on the course, where I'd be, you know, be more vulnerable. Um, I had scenarios in my head and... You know, if all of that didn't work, it came down to the fact, well, okay, this is just going to hurt and I just have to win. Mm. So, I, you know, I, everything was sort of very meticulous around all those things. Can, can you give us some examples maybe of, of a couple of your rivals? I don't know, someone like a Michaeli Jones or Loretta Harrop or Jackie Gallagher or, or somebody like that. Like what do you go, right, Michaeli's weak at this particular point, so I'm going to attack her here? Or, or maybe just talk us through some examples. Um, so Michaeli, um, my two biggest rivals, I would say, were Michaeli Jones and Carol Montgomery. Mm. Um, so Carol Montgomery was a standout runner. She was a very, very good runner. She was a 31 minute 10K and she would have ripped off, um, Gwen Jorgensen's legs, I believe, <laughs> in a 10K race. Mm. So just a classy runner. And you could see the bike affected her run. So if I was in a race, whatever happened, even if we're on a flat course, I had to make sure Carol was working on the bike. And even if that meant that I was doing more work, I, I didn't care because it was going to affect her more than it was going to affect me. Mm. So that was that was Carol. Someone like a McKeeley Jones, um, she was a very crafty racer and I always felt that I had a better running pedigree than, than McKeeley and – I noticed that she'd never, ever lost a sprint finish and I did also notice that when it came to a sprint finish, she went in the last, you know, 200 metres. So I thought, right, if I ever get into the situation in a race where I'm racing McKaylee at the end, I'm going to go from a K out. Mm. So we're going to turn it into a real sprint finish. Mm. And um, the only time I ever did that was um, I, I beat her in a sprint finish by 0.04 of a second. Wow. So <laughs> what's that like? What's that K like? Because if you're going hardcore from a K out, that's that's you're digging deep, aren't you? Yeah, it was. Um, it was a messy race. That's um, that was the year I broke my foot. So um, you know, you mentioned that Loretta Harrop was one of my competitors. Loretta Harrop um, was only racing well when I was racing poorly, yeah. <laughs> and that sounds a very arrogant thing to say. And for everyone that's heard that and just been disgusted, you need to read my book. Yeah, um, to see what I mean. Um, but yeah, Car- um, Carol Montgomery and McKeeley Jones were the two athletes I, I respected. 
like fully, like you have to have everything on to um, have to have your mind switched on to make sure you're going to beat those girls. And and when you you know you got to the top pretty much straight away and you sustained that Actually, for, straight away. for for pretty much for a couple of years, um, was it difficult for you to stay at the top? You know, often people say to get the top's one thing, but to stay there is the, the tricky part. So I guess how hard was that for you, and and how did you maintain the motivation when you were just crushing it time after time? Um, well, motivation isn't isn't even an issue. I don't I don't really understand that problem. Um, you know what do people start winning go oh okay i'm bored i'd like to go and get another job like i don't understand that um you know every day you train every every time a race pops up you race to win um that's was sort of how i am um the the performance drop-off thing well that was absolutely horrendous in my life i couldn't work out what was wrong and it was you know obviously my heart condition and you know i've I've never, I've never retired. I've been told to retire, so I've never actually finished. Mm. <laughs> so that's you know that's why I'm a coach now. That's you know my passion never ended. Um, I still train every day. I still do everything every day. People look at me and go, "Oh my God, you look as finished. You look exactly the same." And I said, "Well, yeah, I'm behaving exactly the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just don't go as quick anymore because I've got a defibrillator in my chest." Um, but, yeah, motivation and everything is not – I mean, things become more complicated because you've got so many more commitments and you've got requirements and you've got sponsors and you've got um, – well, I happen to have a few maniacs in, you know, sporting federations that were being difficult. But you've that, that becomes all more complicated. But, yeah, the motivation was always there, always will be. Well, can, can I ask, you know, because it's always really fascinating when you go from, you know, Joe, Joe Public – to being a superstar, um, how did you handle that aspect of it? You know, I'm sure you, most of the time you're training in your own little bubble, but you, there is this kind of, you know, I always, I always, I always think of you, when you're in a world where everyone laughs at all your jokes all the time, you know, because it's just because of the position you are in the world. How did you handle the kind of transition to how people treated you differently, or did you not really notice it? Um, I don't, I don't know if people treated me differently. I just. You know, I had such respect for Australian sport and growing up, you know, I wanted to be a part of it and I just didn't want to screw that up. So, you know, when I missed the Games in 2000, um, a lot of my disappointment was the fact that I'd let Australia down. Oh, really? And, yeah, it's, it's you know, when you when you put on the Australian uniform and you race for Australia, you know, things got to be to me, things get a hell of a lot more serious. I see athletes now and they, you know, go to the Noosa Triathlon and they stick their Australian kit on. That's not something that you piss around in. If you're going to put that on, you win. Mm. Um, so I suppose, I mean, in the street, um, I, I used to send mum out for groceries because, you, you you know, you couldn't do simple things quickly anymore. Mm. And it, that sort of stuff became a little bit more complicated but if anyone ever recognised me, you know, you'd, you'd try and acknowledge it and try and um, try and sort of spend some time or, you know, taking time out for that because that was, you know, that was that was the key to it all because without your, your fans switching the TV on or coming to races, 
no one gives a toss. The, the thing of um, one of your real drivers is that next level, the, the kind of the culture of we are here to deliver our best if we put that Australian jersey on. Like Australia is a very successful sporting nation. Is that something you feel most Australian elite athletes have or do you think you're a bit unique with that? Um, I don't see it so much now. Um, but that's, I suppose in New Zealand, you know, if you put an All Blacks jersey yeah, on. totally. You know, you go out there and you play to win. I, I interviewed one of the All Black coaches a while ago and um, and he said the reason the All Blacks will be always be the best is because the public just won't let them lose. Yeah. 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 And I felt responsible. I felt it was my duty. It was my job. Um, I was being paid to do that. And... Yeah, just if you don't do, if you don't win, you, it's such a waste of time. I, I don't understand. Yeah, I, I, I've never understood. You know, people crossing the line in twentieth place and not being a, a distraught mess. <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, you should need counselling if you cross the line. You need counselling first. <laughs> <laughs> Call the counsellor. <laughs> yeah, like that. You've just completely screwed up. That's yeah. I. But that leads to a really interesting question because then you had two years where you basically dominate the world. No, it was about four, four years or okay, so. Okay, four dominated. years. So, so you had a period where you just were absolutely dominating. Obviously a heart condition, but how did you handle not being that, that successful? No. So I had the four years and then I had the fifth year I broke my foot. So I had two races that year. The first one I broke it and I came fourth with the fastest run, but I couldn't quite get it, get going. And then the second race was the World Championships, which was a third, and I'd only been running for like four weeks. So it was written off as this crap year, but to anyone else, that would have been a great year, you know? Mm. So if I didn't win, everything was a disaster. Mm. Um, I moved up to Sydney to work with – so the biggest problem with my heart condition was initial bursts of energy, which is exactly what a swim is. So, you know, you, you've done your warm-up, you've, you've done your um, stretching, you've done your, you know, your run-throughs and you've done all that sort of stuff and then you get into your training and you're fine. But with my heart condition, in a swim warm-up, you know, you've, you've warmed up, you've, you've marshaled, you stand on the line, then all of a sudden the gun goes and you've got to go flat out for 200 metres. So I'd go flat out and then I'd have this horrible weakness wash over me after about a minute, minute and a half. And I didn't know it was my heart. I just thought... I, don't, I just thought, I don't know, I didn't, didn't really process it. I just went, right, I'm going to have to back off and just sort of get through this. You, know, you go completely weak. And, um, you know, then I'd get hammered. People would swim over the top of me. And, you know, I started coming out of the water, you know, a couple of minutes behind. Um, so, of course, I didn't tell anyone because that's soft and weak and pathetic and finding excuses. So, you know, I trained harder and I moved up to Sydney and I swam with some maniac swim coaches that just absolutely flogged the hell out of me and, you know, just made the whole thing worse. And you would have responded to that because that was your attitude, wasn't it? Yeah, I didn't. Like, no one's going to crack me. Yeah, so you need yeah. to just swim up and down. And when I broke my foot, I was swimming 70K a week, which is just absolutely ludicrous. And... um yeah, Dad's always said he's really annoyed that he wasn't there to sort of protect me from that. But, you know, he was he was running feeler and, you know, I, I'd moved away from sort of home and our little unit 
trying to do the right thing and trusting in people and it was just a horrible, horrible time. And it, it looks like it, it really dragged on, you know, from sort of through 2000 through to 2003. So I'm imagining that was pretty rough and did you consider packing it in? I mean, I know you said you didn't retire, you, you kind of got made to retire, but what was sort of going through your minds during that sort of two, three-year period? Well, I wasn't winning. Well, I was I was winning, but I wasn't winning like I was. Yeah. And I was still competitive internationally. So I think that an elite athlete, a true elite athlete, you know, you've got that um, – talent and motivation in most people but a true elite athlete also always rests with optimism and um you know the the human mind rests with um sort of pessimism because you've got that life-saving oh you know this could be a bad situation i'm going to get out of here Mm. you've got that sort of life-saving device i I think i might be missing that because i Because I'm always like, no, no, this will be right, this will be right, you know, and then it all goes to shit and you're like, actually, no, that wasn't right, (laughs) which is good in a racing situation but in life, you know, it can kill you. And I I kept thinking, no, no, I can can do it. I took myself up to the AIS and I swam with the swimmers and I ran with the runners and I cycled with um, some cyclists and some rowers and, you know, I was training really well. So then I thought, well, maybe that's just the approach I'm taking in racing and I modified my warm-ups and, you know, I really pulled it all apart. Um, So, yeah, it wasn't until, you know, I was still in the mix for the Athens Olympics, Um, you know, but it wasn't until I actually had a cardiac arrest that I went, oh, okay, hey, yep, I've got a bit of a problem here. (laughs) Mm. On on an emotional level, how are you dealing with that time? Because it's... You know, it must have been so frustrating. Um, you know, you hold this this star of uh, this kind of standard of uh, my job is to win, and if not anything, I should be seeing counsellor. So, how did you emotionally handle that time? Because I imagine it just must have been so hard. Yeah, it was really hard, really, really hard. A lot of people that have read my book, which you know they're starting to receive now, it's come out of the printers, um, have said, "Wow, that's a really." honest account and it's really really sad and um but you know i i also at the same time i thought well i can't really complain i'm swim biking and running for a living Mm. i've just got to work out why i've stopped winning and it was it was quite clear um because when i was racing well i was finishing about 10 minutes behind the men and the races had gone back to winning you know the women were outside that time so i was obviously going slower no one was going quicker so there was something wrong with me. And so I could, you know, very honestly look at myself and say, right, there's something wrong with me. I need to work out what it was. And the really ironic thing, if it had been any other muscle in my body, I would have been able to work it out. But the heart has no sensory muscles. Mm. So you can completely screw your heart. And and yeah, not knowing. Keep doing it, keep doing it. And um, my cardiologist can't believe I didn't die in races. Really? He just says to me, I've never known anyone to back off and go and back off and go. And um, But even my first cardiac incident, um, you know, I was in this arrhythmia for over an hour. Normally the heart muscle will fatigue and you'll go into the next stage, which is ventricular fibrillation, um, which is, you know, sudden death. And um, I have an extraordinarily... 
<laughs> this is going to sound really arrogant, a very strong heart which can sustain um, an arrhythmia for extraordinarily long length of time. So my training must have somehow strengthened my yeah. heart, which ended up saving my life. So my training saved my life and also tried to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> nice balance. And, but what's the training the cause of the heart? Well, we don't – initially they were like, oh, yeah, you know, here we go, that's what you did. Um, I remember my sitting in bed and, you know, annoyed and – Telling my cardiologist to hurry up because the race season's getting out of, you know, <laughs> speeding away. <laughs> and he said to me, one day he came into my room, he said, Emma, do you think there's a chance that you might have trained too hard? And I looked at him and I thought, oh, God. I said, no, no way, prof. <laughs> um, but my sister has since had a cardiac arrest and she had a – she she actually died. So Claire, Claire did a much better job than me. She was in a coma for two and a half days and she was written off. Oh, wow. So – um, it sounds a bit of a train wreck my life, but that's, you know, I also sort of cover that in my book. So then they were like, okay, so maybe Emma's not that crazy. Maybe there's a, a genetic problem, but they can't find a gene that, a gene that links uh, Claire and my problem mm. in her heart. They probably find the, all, the, all the other problems are linked, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so at the end of the day, um, 2003-ish, I see you where it did not finish in – in Queenstown um, for the World Champs. Yeah. What, what was the sort of final straw that went, boom, that's it, you're not doing any more? Um, no, I didn't. I raced again after that. So I broke a chain in Spain, in Madrid, mm-hmm. and I went to Queenstown and just I remember riding through the town. I had no power. I must have been doing about 20K an hour, and Dad just said stop. And Dad started to notice there was something wrong. And he said, what, what are you, what's wrong? And I said, I don't know. I've got no energy. Because it started, as the heart problem became worse, it started to creep into the bike and run. And, you know, once my bike and run's gone, well, I might as well, mm. you know, pick daisies for a living. Mm. Um, it, I'm just useless. So, you know, I got through 93 and went up to the AIS at the beginning of 94. 2000, 2004, you mean? Oh, sorry, yeah, 2003, 2004. <laughs> I've yeah. gone back 10 years. And um, I did my training at the AIS and I went overseas with the Australian team. It must have been around June of 2004 and went to Edmonton to do the, the World Cup there, which is, you know, now WTS race. And um, that's when I had my cardiac arrest. I had it in the swimming pool. Mm. We were training for Jeez. the race. Um I felt awful, pushed off the wall, felt awful. I thought, oh, geez, it's not in training now. So I forced myself to finish the session um, just because I didn't want to admit that I wasn't well. Um, got out of the pool, felt awful. Just it's, it's sort of if you if you think about if you ever torn your calf muscle, which you probably have if you're triathletes. Um, yeah, three weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> That little ball of muscle that's just ripping away in your calf. So when you go into cardiac arrest, you can suddenly feel where your heart is and it races in your chest. And I thought I was having a panic attack because to me it just felt panicky. So I thought, oh, I better go and get changed. And, you know, I finished the session, got out, got myself changed. But as I walked, it's very difficult to breathe because your heart's racing, you're not getting oxygen in properly. And so I got to the change rooms, got myself changed. Um, worst thing in the world, I didn't want to pass out nude. Um, <laughs> so I managed to get that done. 
got out, went outside to get some fresh air. I was standing there and um, I bumped into team manager Bill Daverin and uh, he had just arrived from Australia and he said to me, hi, hi Emma, how are you? And He obviously just said that to make conversation because I said, my, my heart's racing. Now, Greg Welsh had had a cardiac arrest and defibrillator fitted, you know, like two years before. So everyone in Australian triathlon knew that you could screw your heart up at this stage. And he just sort of said to me, oh, you know, go back to the hotel and have a rest. And I, you know, that was my favourite thing to do is to avoid everyone and have a rest. But it kind of frightened me to be left on my own. I knew something was wrong. Mm. So we sort of gradually made our way back. Everyone got into the bus and I asked if I could sit in the front so I could wind the window down. And so at this stage, you know, only Bill Daver knew that I wasn't feeling well. I told the driver I wasn't feeling well. Um, and um, Jamie Turner was driving. Mm-hmm. Anyway, got to some lights. And as I'm sitting in the chair, my, my um, sort of the slumping of the chair was pushing my, sort of closing my lungs, you know, because you sort of slouch. So I got out of the lights to just get some air into my lungs and then I sort of realised that I couldn't really stand up properly because it was sort of there's no energy in my body because obviously my heart was failing. So everyone on the on the um, bus started yelling at me. The lights changed and and I just said, "Oh look, pass me my bag." And the bus drove off. And I thought, "Oh shit, you know I'm screwed." Um, fortunately, the bus stopped, you know, about 50 metres up the road, and someone jumped out and. Um, by the time he came back to me, I was lying on the footpath because <laughs> I'd realised I couldn't stand up and I'd also realised I couldn't really, I couldn't panic because I thought, well, this is going to get out of control. I can't breathe. Something's going on in my heart. If I panic, this will all overload and I'll, I'll die. So I thought I'm going to have to make whoever this is panic. So he was, mm, what are you doing, Carney? I don't know where we are. Why would you get out of the bus? The bus is gone. And and I just said, look, you you just shut up, you've got to listen, you need to get me help, I'm in big trouble here. And so he ran off and fortunately he dropped his bag, so I assumed he was coming back. And um, he came back, he actually came back with a cab and I said, no, I need an ambulance. So we're about 200 metres away from a, um, or 2K away from a um, cardiac hospital, which was pretty amazing. Yeah, lucky. So yeah, I was defibrillated in the back of the um in the back of the ambulance, and uh, my cardiologist to the day can't believe that um, I had 250 joules of electricity smashed through my chest, <laughs> still fully conscious. Um, but yeah, that corrected it, and um, I spent 10 days in hospital over in Canada. They couldn't really find an issue, um, so yeah. Came back to Australia. And so, what happened with life after that? You know, obviously, there's the recovery, and then, you know, what did you what did you end up doing from 2004 until we sort of see you pop up on the ITU coverage in 2020? What what happened with life in that sort of 16 year period? Um, it was a horrendous time. Um, <laughs> nothing really got any better, and uh, so you know, I went through the the process of being diagnosed and I wasn't an ideal patient. I was probably the worst patient my cardiologist has ever, has ever had. Um, you know, I, I sort of go through that in my book, but you know, one of the, one of the tests I remember, you know, you, you have all these tests and, um, you know, they're trying to investigate your heart and all this sort of stuff. And one of the tests they said to me, right, uh, we're going to do a stress test. And I said, okay, what does that involve? 
And they said, um, you've got to run to exhaustion on the treadmill. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, when can we do that? <laughs> so I was you know, really excited. And um, I talk about it, you know, the, I turned up in my race flats. I, I was absolutely <laughs> ready to go. And my idea of running flat out and their idea in a cardiac hospital of running flat out is the two opposite ends of the spectrum. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I was really disappointed. But, um, yeah, I ended up getting a defibrillator fitted in October of 2004. Um, and that, you know, completely changes your life. Yeah. And very, very, very sad. But then within a year, my older sister Jane was diagnosed with cancer and she'd just had her first child and she died within five months. Oh, man. And so I was, I was close with Jane. Um, as well as close as an annoying little sister can be. Um, so that was just, oh, just heart wrenching. You know, she left behind a five month old. She's, you know, she was a lawyer. She's, she actually went to Wellington for her age group, and um, she always used to say to me when she was, you know, how do you race? How do you be so mean to people? And then she ended up being a lawyer, and I always thought that was a real, <laughs> real, really ironic. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we lost Jane in January of 2006 and yeah, just really, really sad for a long time. So I hadn't been, you know, since the Sydney Olympics and, um, the fiasco around that, I've, I've never pu publicly spoken about that. And I, I know you guys wanted to interview me, but no, I no. always think, get the book. Well, I, well, I always think that if, if you discuss, a situation where you're done wrongly or wrongly done by, I, I just think you sound as if you're whinging. And um, I've actually had um, I had a historian recreate, recreate the Olympic appeal. So it's a factual account of what went on. It's not my opinion. It's not my father's opinion. It's actually what went on. Yeah. So whether you believe I was hard done by or not, there's an account in there where it's reconstructed and you can make your own decision. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't, you know, sports like that, you can't predict sport. And I don't want to um, say that, oh, you know, I was, yeah, you, you've just got to read it. Because whatever you, whatever you end up saying publicly will be misconstrued. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, after I was very, very sad, I then made a very big error in my life and I got married. It <laughs> <laughs> yeah. was, was the error of the wrong person. Uh, I don't understand marriage. Um, <laughs> I don't understand how people keep getting married either. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I married a guy who, um, well, I'd, I'd loved him and um, I thought he was perfect, but as it turns out, um, completely different to me. Um, but what I did get out of that marriage was a beautiful little son called Jack. Oh, okay. And um, Jack is very much like me. And um, I'm surprised Jack and I are still alive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because being, um, you know, when you have a child, I'm actually surprised that the human race has survived. That is such, that is so hard. It's easier to win a world title uh -huh. than keep a baby alive, I think. Yeah. <laughs> How did you get over the sadness? Um. I think you just work through it. I come from a family where, you know, you don't talk about things, which is completely incorrect. Mm. Um, the book helped. 
so you don't you know I've been writing this down all all this time um and so writing the book and I sort of thought one day I said to dad I'm going to put down all my race results and dad goes oh okay that's a good idea so I went through all my all my medals all my trophies all my record of results from when I was you know 13 to to now and uh, I put all that together at the back of the book and for the first time I saw it on paper and I said to Dad, it's a pretty good list. You know, it's about six pages of the book. Mm. Um, and so for the first time in my life I actually looked back and was proud of what I'd done. Wow. Um, but Les McDonald, you know, how did I get over the sadness? Les McDonald, I used to call him. So Les McDonald ran World Triathlon mm. or the ITU and Les McDonald was a very, very – he was a great man and he copped a lot of flack at the time because um, the, the traditional triathletes of the time, you know, oh, we don't want drafting, we don't want this, we don't want that. Les is coming in and he's ruining the sport. But Les made the sport an Olympic sport. Les was absolutely, without Les, you know, we'd all be doing Ironman races and mm. we wouldn't be a world-class sport. And um, he was always... Outside of my dad, he was a, someone I could trust. So, you know, I spoke to Les a few times and I'm really disappointed I didn't get my act together and get this book written before Les died because, you know, I've, I've captured some of the moments and the conversations we had and, you know, some, some funny issues. Mm. Um, I remember once in Japan, so I'm left-handed. Same, and, by the way, just so you know. Yeah, yeah I know, very talented. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. So I've always been really proud of my left-handedness. I don't know. I tried to make Jack left-handed and um, <laughs> <laughs> he says to me, you know, am I perfect, Mum? I go, almost, you're not left-handed. Um, so <laughs> poor Jack. <laughs> anyway, um, I went through a stage of, you know, my winning stage and uh, McKeeley beat me in Montreal and as I was racing in Montreal and I'd noticed it all my career all the all the aid stations were on the right and in Mo in no not Montreal sorry in Monte Carlo she beat me mm. and I'd noticed all my career aid stations were on the right and it hadn't really irritated me because I'd won so this race in Monte Carlo it really irritated me because I got beaten so the next race was in Gamagori in Japan and the pre-race briefing, um, I never really contributed much because, you know, I didn't really want to talk, just get the thing done, go back and rest for the race. I said, you know, they said, any issues? I said, yeah, can you make the um, aid stations uh, <laughs> accessible to left-handers? And everyone in the room laughed at me and said, oh, you know, piss off, Carney. And I thought, hmm, okay. So rather than start an argument, I thought I'll prove why you need a left-handed aid station. So um, in the race, the bike came together and got off, the, got off the bike and got into the run. It was a four-lap run. After the first lap, I was about 20 metres up on the field and I could see the aid station in front of the stadium, in front of all the officials ahead of me, as usual, on the right. So I picked up, I thought, right, so I, I um, picked up a cup and I dragged my arm through the whole aid station <laughs> and just didn't flinch and kept running. And you could, you could hear the chaos. You could hear everyone in a panic. And the Japanese had every little cup beautifully lined up and they were all on the floor. And anyway, I crossed the line one. Les came over to me and he said, um, 
there's been a protest. And I said, oh, what for? And he said, destroying an aid station. <laughs> I said, what? And Les, I said, there's no rule for that. I said, what do you mean destroying an aid station? And he said, oh, come on, Carney. I said, Les, I'm left-handed. You never, ever have cups on the left. <laughs> so now there's a rule in the rule book, ITU or World Triathlon rule book, that you must accommodate left-handed athletes. <laughs> so, just, just one thing with, with when you found out you had your heart condition, did that, did that give you some sense of relief? Because then it kind of maybe explained why yeah, that, what was happening happened. Yeah. Yeah, you suddenly sort of thought, God, I was actually doing a pretty good job out there. Mm. You know, I um, I was doing okay and I was bloody well doing well and I've blown away, you know, medical experts that I'm not dead. So, yeah, it was nice to know I hadn't gone soft because that would have been, you know, an awful thing to live with for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> God, you remind me of Erin Baker, eh? Yeah, like <laughs> to a T. <laughs> uh, but... Um, yeah, it, it, I suppose, yeah, it was nice to know that, but it was also disappointing that, okay, this is quite a serious thing and I really have, I really will have to stop. Um, how did you end up doing commentary? Because uh, I, I don't usually watch the intro to um, to events and stuff. I watch the, you know, the World Try series. Uh, usually just sort of fast forward, watch the swim start and then, uh, you know, then sort of carry on from there, whether I'm on the train or whatever I'm doing. And one day... This female was commentating. I'm like, I'm sure that's Emma Carney, and the name wasn't on the screen or anything like that. And as it transpired, obviously it was you. So, um, how did you end up doing that gig? I think I contacted the World Triathlon, but Les always said to me, he said, just he said, can you come back? Can you come back and contribute to World Triathlon? And or he said ITU, and and I said, oh Les, I'm in the middle of a divorce. And Les was like, what? You too? Why do all you strong women get divorced? <laughs> and uh, so he was he was funny. He said just. He said, come back to triathlon. So I sort of, you know, thought about it and um, I contacted Chris Gemmell. Mm-hmm. And um, I think now, though, because of the sustainability, it's going to be um, live streamed to the UK and they're going to run it out of the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so someone else will be commentating. But, yeah, I've, I'm involved in the development side of, um, of World Triathlon, the development team and coaching um, and, you know, uh, sort of doing some facilitating for some coaches and um, I'm really sort of interested in that and getting the sport. What I'd like to see, and um, I find it really odd in triathlon coaching, most of the triathlon coaching is written by developed federations and the developed federations have strong swimmers. Mm. So there's a belief out there if you don't get out of the water within 30 seconds, you're never going to win a triathlon. And that has dumbed down the bike. Mm. But if you manage to get the, the, the uh, tail of the triathlon to wag, in other words, you started to get athletes riding that bike course fast in small packs at the back, you could really turn races around. Mm. Um, so I've started to try and work on that with developing countries. Very, very difficult because um, it's such an ingrained belief um but i'm also coaching myself now mm-hmm. so that's that's interesting as well because you know it requires working with triathlon australia yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do, do you um 
is it sort of juniors or age groupers or, or elites? And, and I guess what lessons do you take from your career in terms of, especially your, your father sort of holding you back? I mean, what's your sort of philosophy around developing the athletes? Because, you know, these days they're, they're pretty young. I mean, I suppose you were young when you were at your peak as well. But a lot of the athletes are now 20 to 25 when they're really humming, maybe into their late 20s. So do you sort of follow your dad's sort of principles or have you developed your own methodology? Yeah, I've so you know I'm I'm a single mum. I have limited time. I've got an online coaching business where I you know do the bulk of um, age groupers and um, that sort of stuff. But I'm currently working with an athlete who I believe will be a world champion. Um, her name's also Emma, mm-hmm. which is a little bit of a piss take because um, these days a lot of coaching is done around data mm-hmm. mm. and too much so. You need to have that balance and um, you need to have that understanding of the sport and, and data is is actually absurd because by coaching an Emma, and this is sort of an example of how absurd coaching uh, data, too much data is, um, if your name's Emma and you're female and you come from Australia, the likelihood that you're going to be a world champion <laughs> is right up there. Yeah, good point. Yeah. So... So people are like, okay, what's your talent ID? And I go, well, I just went, okay, are you female? Are you, is your name Emma? And are you from Australia? Okay, so you're going to be a world champion. Yeah. yeah. And and everyone's like, oh, that's so ridiculous. And I go, well, so is all your data. You know, like you've got all this stuff, and they ignore the mental approach, they ignore the race plans, they ignore the basics of you know the the fitness on the bike, they ignore the skill that's required, you know, the racing skill, the racing IQ. Mm. Um, they ignore the quality running. So I, I think that um, the running you need is a middle distance running program. You know, if you can run a 1,500 metre fast, all the other disciplines, you know, the bike and the swim, is going to give you the um, endurance to get through a triathlon. You don't have to go and run 10K on the track to know you can run 10K in a triathlon. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So in terms of your book, you know, you mentioned a, a number of times, um, you know, some of the things that are contained in there. It's autobiography. Is it sort of like a, a step-by-step um, through through your life, or is there anything particular, you know, you want to get across what what people can expect? Hmm. Um, everyone that's read it is really surprised at the detail. So it, it basically it starts you at this, you know, in my I'm in cardiac arrest. That's the, the first chapter. Um, and then I take you back to, to the beginning of my life. Um, I was, you know, born in England and um, had a father who was always going to live in Australia and my mum's name Sheila and that's slang for an Aussie, Aussie bird. Yeah. Um, so she was destined. So it's, yeah, I, I think it takes you through my whole life, you know, how my school shaped me and um, but just the whole thing all the way through is that passion for sport so, and I've also alluded at the the end um, that I've got another book um, coming, and that will be how I coached. Mm. So it's um, I've always liked writing, and I was always very good at English at school. And uh, even my coaches, who they all thought that they knew me really well, and my masseur that I talk about in there, they said that we had no idea that you could write like this. Mm. So and you know if you if you like a good sports story and if you like um if you like triathlon and even if you hated me um apparently <laughs> it's still a good read. 
it's in terms of availability and stuff like obviously it's your know, australian's been printed over there at the moment you know shipping can you get stuff. on the kindle yeah so what's what's the deal in terms of getting it uh, or we, we so can we can plug that later on as well if you once it comes yeah, out it, well it's printed in the uk the us and australia so wherever you order it it you know it's not too far away so it's only available at the moment from my publisher okay i wanted to get it out by christmas mm. and you know it'll be into stores soon and it, it you know it starts to Publishing is, is a very, very confusing business. Yeah. I don't really understand it. So my publisher owns my book. Mm, so yeah. for me to me to buy it, it's like 30 bucks for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so it's cost me a fortune to give my coaches my book. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's it's available on a link. If you go to my socials, um, you'll find the link. But it's Ryan Publishing is my publisher. And you can go on there anywhere in the world um, and purchase it, and um, yeah, it's available. We'll have, we'll have links on uh, on IM Talk as well, so you guys can get it there. Um, just one question: How would you like to be remembered as an athlete? I would like to be well. The biggest honour I ever achieved was probably at the lowest point of my life. Um, I was inducted into the Sport Australia Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. so I. I would just like to be remembered for someone who um, made a difference. And I think you can safely, I can safely say that whatever I have done in my life, I've made a difference or I'm remembered, whether it's um, I'm remembered for my excellence or my train wreck. <laughs> mm. um, so to, to make a difference and um, to have a high regard in Australian sport, that's, you know, I, I still owe Australia an Olympic gold medal. <laughs> and um, I'm going to coach to that. And I've got this little thing going, which I call the Podium Project, and I'd like to fill a podium at the Olympic Games, and, um, you know, that'll sort of be a 2032. Mm. But I've got some, some young, a little girl who's about 12, who you can, she's, I used to race her mum when I was, when I was running. She'll be a world-class triathlete. I've got Emma currently. And um, I was told I, I spent some time on the Triathlon Australia board and, you know, we're talking about developing the sport and everything and I was told that, you know, Australia doesn't have any talent anymore and I just I, just, I can't believe that you even have said that. Yeah. Um, Australia it, is absolutely oozing with talent and don't blame your, you know, your inability to run a sport on young Australians. So there's a lot of talent here still. And um, hopefully, I can capture that. Fantastic, guys! I could probably sit here and talk oh, with Emma for, for a couple of hours. Yeah. Um, but thankfully, she's got a book out there, so you can anything that Emma hasn't discussed today, uh, you're going to find in her book. And I just checked; it is available on Amazon.com. So if you want to go and get it on there, you can as well. Um, Emma, thanks so much for your time. Absolutely love no talking worries. to you. Love watching Thank your you. career when I was going through the same stage, and just. Uh, Loved how you destroyed the fields, except when it was Kiwis as well. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're bloody star. I really hope you enjoyed that interview. As I was saying in the introduction before we put the interview on, you can just see the mindset, you know, that determination. And interestingly, uh, before we did the interview, John, John and I was talking about how 
you wondered if the father was one of those parents, a bit like Andre Agassi's dad, who I don't know if you've read the book Open. It's a great book, and that kind of pressuring parent who kind of is trying to bring the best out of their kids, but maybe not in a way that's healthy for their kids. And it was interesting that her father had to hold her back, and you know, even from you know the, her, kind of her earliest thoughts, she just wanted to be this world champion athlete, and. Uh, so yes, yeah, some really cool insight in there. Uh, I'm not going to spend too much time post the interview today because obviously we've already hit an hour on the show. So uh, just thank you for that. If you are enjoying the show, you become a patron of the show. Go to bevanjamesisles.com. Click on podcast. Click on support me. Go through the process. Supporting me helps me get more of these shows out to you and helps spread the philosophy that I believe around health and fitness, which is about helping everyday people achieve amazing goals. Um, 2021 begins. It's been a crazy 2020. Uh, so let's let's make this one a great year. So that's going to pretty much it for the, to this week. Uh, thank you to all the patrons who already are patrons. If you want to email me, bevanjames at gmail.com. But other than that, let's rock on. Let's have a wonderful day. And I'll see you in a couple weeks from now. Mm-hmm.